The sermon scripture passage is from Matthew 5, 2 through 12. If you have a church Bible, it is on page 456. Okay. And he began to teach them. He said, blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Praise be to God. Well, good morning. I'm Tom Taylor, and... Uh, Know many of you from your days at another church not far from here, and it's good to see you and also to see some of you that I've never met. Hope to get to meet you more before the day is over. Um, sadly, uh, I preached for the first time from my iPad the last time I preached, and when I was going to do that this time, they upgraded Dropbox and it no longer works on my old iPad. So I have this convenient device with me, and uh, I hope it's not a distraction to you. It's my only anchor right now for my sermon, so uh, it's what I'll be depending on. A number of years ago, uh, I found I had this condition of chronic anemia, and so I've been going through all these different kinds of tests over and over again. They never find anything that's wrong. But last summer, they were doing a, a test, a, did a CAT scan, and they noticed what looked like uh, a growth on my pancreas. And of course, that raises great concerns. And so they uh, decided to do an MRI. And when they did the MRI, they discovered that it wasn't a growth on my pancreas. It was a, an aneurysm on my splenic artery, which overlays the pancreas. So, Thankfully, they found this rather sizable aneurysm, and they put the coils in, and I'm fine. But I was just grateful for the deeper look, for the opportunity to, to go beyond the surface look, because I'm in great health. I exercise. I do all these things. I sleep well. I eat well. Uh, all kinds of things, you know? And so, but going inside, they discover this thing that could be potentially deadly. Uh, so, grateful for that, Scripture tells us to examine ourselves, to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. We're told that God's Word is alive and active, penetrating even to dividing the soul and spirit and judging our thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Spiritually, a deeper look keeps us healthy as well. And that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, I know the series is Rest, Renewal, and Grace, 
And I thought, what a perfect time to hear about the Beatitudes, which are all about these many, many blessings that God gives us. And so we're going to take a, a deeper look because the, the connection we see in the Beatitudes in terms of our health of our character is, could be summarized as something as simple as God's blessings are connected to our character. When you read the Beatitudes, God's blessings are connected to our character. It's the exact focus that the Beatitudes have. Now, we're going to allow the Beatitudes to examine our character this morning. Uh, and we're going to look at two sets of character traits. There's four that deal more internally and four that have slightly more outward look. But they're all internal characters, uh, characteristics of our character. So I'm going to be the technician. I'm the guy that runs the machine. But we need the work of the Holy Spirit. We need the great physician himself to be at work in our hearts, in our lives, as we allow God's word to speak to us this morning. So let's pray and ask God to be at work and to guide us and to help us. Father, we are grateful that you have given us yourself. We're grateful for your word, which is there to help correct and rebuke and to encourage us. And Lord, we pray for your spirit to be at work through your word this morning. I pray for help to be faithful to your word and that you would work in each of our lives to help us, to guide us, to point out those areas that may be potential difficulty, that we might get things right by your work in us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Beatitudes, just a, a bit of the context in the Gospel of Mark, we have Jesus who is baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness, to literally identify with the lowest of the low, as he did even more so in his crucifixion, to be identified with some who were not even considered human in the society of that time. So Jesus is baptized, and then he goes out into the wilderness as it tempted 40 days and nights in the wilderness. Then he comes and he begins to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. He chooses his first disciples. And then he goes and preaches the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that the eternal kingdom has broken in to human history. And he demonstrates the reality of that by casting out demons and by healing the sick. This is what proceeds in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, of which the Beatitudes are the beginning. So he, he does all this. He comes to the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is really giving a summary of those who are part of this kingdom of God, those who are citizens of the kingdom of God and, and how they are to live. And he has a primary thesis, if you will, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. That is his message in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. And he shows the greater righteousness of the kingdom of God over the righteousness of man. And he begins there, that whole section with eight or nine, if you want to count a double beatitude, of these paradoxical statements. 
things that really don't make sense on their own, very short, with a judgment at each one that says, blessed are those, blessed is he. It's, a, it's God's judgment and pronouncement that the person who has these characteristics is blessed, not woe is this person, but blessed. And so that's, that's the tenor of the Beatitudes we're going to look at. And again, we're going to do an inward series of tests first. So I'll, well, I didn't bring my mask today, but I would normally have a mask on uh, to run these tests for us to look at our, our character in light of the Beatitudes. So the first uh, four are looking at a inward characteristics that have an inward orientation toward God. And then the, the last four, uh, the last of which is a double um, beatitude, looks more with an outward orientation. Okay. So now we're starting. The first, Matthew 5.3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The desired trait that God is looking for here, that he blesses, is utter destitution in spirit. Utterly destitute. You get the idea that these are paradoxes. What, what more could you want but to be utterly destitute? How many of you have been thinking, I want to be utterly destitute? But that's what God blesses. That's what he's looking for. And the reason why that's so important is because this is in relationship to a holy and fully righteous God, where our righteousness is as filthy rags. Think what our sin is. We bring nothing to God, and that's that poverty that he's talking about, that utter destitution. We bring absolutely nothing to God. When I pray in the morning, it's from a Hallisby's book called Prayer. It starts off with saying, Lord, I am helpless apart from you. There's nothing I bring to you this day. There's nothing I bring any day. Totally impoverished spiritually. And that's, that's what he's looking for because it recognizes a legitimate and real helplessness that we have. That's the desired trait. Well, what are some problems with that? What undermines having a poor in spirit character. Well, very simply, we know many of these things. We have inside of us an old nature. It's called the flesh. And the flesh wants nothing to do with being poor in spirit. The, the flesh wants itself exalted. It stands in opposition to God. It wants no submission whatsoever to God. So number one battle is the flesh that we have, that we have an old nature that is in rebellion against God. It's at enmity with God. Another factor is the world. We look around us and what, what is the world system calling us but to, to seek to be exalted, to, to be in the, high, in, the, in the forefront of everything, to be well-to-do, to have everything we want. And this, this is where there's an elephant in the room you don't see it, but there's an elephant in the room, and that elephant is that in Luke, 
Jesus' beatitude reads, blessed are the poor, not the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Why are those different? Generally speaking, those that are poor are more likely to recognize their spiritual impoverished, that they're spiritually impoverished. More likely, it's not a given, but that's, that's sort of the attitude. And it makes sense when you consider what Jesus warns us about. You know, he says, you can't serve God and money. For you'll either love the one and hate the other or despise the one and, and adore the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. And I say that to us because we don't realize just how much wealth may be impacting us. Did you realize that if your total wealth, everything you have, your annual income, your, your house, your cars, everything you have, if it's $68,000, you're in the top 10% of the entire world. And if you look at the history of the world, you're in the top 1%. We have so much wealth, we, we, we think we want more but we have so much wealth. And so Jesus puts that out as a warning, and I just share it with you because we can get so enamored with wealth and so complacent with our wealth. Jesus says, where your wealth is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So we have this opposing us. This is a factor that is at work. If we are truly to be or in spirit, we need to understand that there are these forces that oppose that internally in our lives and externally around us with the world. So the blessing that he promises is the kingdom of heaven. And all of these beatitudes say there's alone in the, in the tenses and things, theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. There is no other way to get the kingdom of heaven. And what is the kingdom of heaven but God's reign and rule, his work of grace in our lives, his freedom from slavery to sin. Those are the things he offers. And as we, we read in uh, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Doesn't sound great to be impoverished in spirit, but the result is to be blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing, the kingdom of heaven. The second inward test is from Matthew 5.4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the trade is really speaking about a truly loud lament from the heart. Much like Jesus at Lazarus's tomb where he cries, the, the term as you probably have heard for crying there is like the snorting of a war horse. It's, it's dramatic and it's strong. And that's the trade he desires. He wants us to mourn over our sin. He wants us to recognize we have nothing and we're mourning over having nothing. We don't understand the total destructiveness of sin. 
We don't understand how clearly it separates us from God, from one another, how sin enslaves us. So he's calling us to, to mourn our sin. Well, what undermines mourning? For me, it's taking sin too lightly. I can, I can take sin lightly. The Valley of Vision, a, a, a Puritan book of prayers, just a wonderful prayer aid if you haven't uh, had a chance to pray through it. It's wonderful. They have one called Paradox, which of course fits wonderfully with Beatitudes. But we sin more safely. This is one of the prayers. Because grace abounds. I can sin because I'll be forgiven. Grace abounds. Or we say, God can't cast me into hell because I'm saved. Uh, we're, we're so assured we prayed the prayer. We're all set, right? So why worry about sin? We've got our ticket to heaven. We love preaching. We love churches. We love Christians. So we can live in an unholy way. It doesn't matter. We can take sin far too lightly. But if we understand the destructiveness of sin, we mourn. We cry out, say, God, help me. Father, forgive me for my sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 contrasts grief of this nature with the grief that the world has. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're grieving because your sin is found out, it's very different than grieving because you have sin. And so the second inward test is looking at mourning. And again, it's an interesting uh, beatitude because you could translate it, happy are the unhappy. Blessed are those who mourn. But it makes sense because only those who mourn receive comfort. The third test, um, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The desired trait there is those of a gentle spirit. Do you have a gentle spirit? And this is a natural outcome because if you're already poor in spirit and you're already mourning, doesn't that lead naturally to meekness? Why would you be exalting yourself with that understanding? And that's exactly what it is. Uh, we can be poor in, in spirit. We can mourn. But it leads to a meekness. Um, anything other than meekness would be hypocrisy. Well, we have problems with meekness, too. We're, we're challenged, again, by pride. Self wants to be exalted, and it wars against the spirit. We also struggle with covetousness. Why be meek when you want all of this? When you look at your neighbor, when you look at other people and you desire what they have, when that becomes your goal to have more and more. You know the old saying, uh, when the richest man in the world was, uh, you have everything, what more do you want? I want more. I want more wealth. I want more than I have. That covetousness is a problem that can, can attack our spiritual lives, can change us from being meek. And again, I struggle with this too in a different way. You know, if you're, if, if it's one thing if I admit to you my sin, I say, 
well, I'm, I'm just not perfect, I'm just far off. Uh, and in this way, and I tell you some things, uh, it's okay if I tell you that. But being meek allows you to tell me, and I don't like that. So don't start. Don't start. But uh, I don't like others to tell me, but true meekness can accept that because that's who I am, poor in spirit, mourning, meek. And one of the great challenges in that is in, I'll ask you a question. Who do you confess your sins to besides God? Are there persons that you confess your sins to? Because I have a hard time with that. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to pray and give some kind of, oh, pray for me because I'm sinning. But to confess sin is part of what Scripture says we are to do. Um, Paul Tripp's book, Lead, is about the leadership communities. And he says one of the, the challenges there is that those in leadership, elders, don't even confess sins to one another. Um, this is an area for, for me, I, I'm afraid to admit to anyone how sinful I am. And yet that is what meekness is about. So this becomes another challenge to us. But the blessing is a meek person is genuinely amazed, first of all, that God and man can think well of him. And the blessing that we get from being meek is, is inheriting the, the earth. You know, uh, we strive, people strive for all these things to get all they can, but it's the meek that receive it. Uh, the best commentary on this is from Psalm 37. I would suggest reading the whole psalm, but I'm going to read some of it. Just so you get a sense of the tension that uh, is involved with the meek. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And then verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. God is reserving really the blessing uh, that was first given to Adam and Eve to manage the whole world. We are now heirs with Christ. The whole world is his. Another passage which I'll read because those of you that love the Hallelujah Chorus and, and uh, Handel's Messiah will know Revelation eleven fifteen, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We become partakers and heirs. That's what it's talking about when we inherit the earth. We're getting a picture of our future hope of reigning with Christ. Uh, what a blessing. And that's what God blesses the meek with. The final inward test is Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It's not enough to mourn for sin. It's important to mourn for sin, but it's not enough. We need to be hungering for righteousness. And this hungering and thirsting indicates a very strong spiritual desire and need. It's not casual. It's saying, 
I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. I'm not satisfied with just being forgiven over and over again. I want righteousness. And what is righteousness? There's at least three primary elements that we know. One is legal. has to do with being justified. We are justified by Christ. We are treated as righteous. His righteousness becomes ours. The second is moral righteousness. Uh, uh, living a life that honors God, uh, seeking to be holy as he is holy. And the third is social. It's concerned with uh, seeking liberation for the oppressed. It's civil rights, justice in the courts. It's integrity in business. It's honor in the family. All of these things, the social, the moral, and the legal, are all important. But what are some of the problems? Candidly, it's, it's easy to be selective on the kind of righteousness that we want or that we want to pursue or that we're concerned about. It's easy to want to punch that ticket for heaven. I just want to be justified. Let me live my life any way I want. So I, I want salvation, but let me live my life. Or it's easy to become a moralist. It was somewhat similar to what the Pharisees were doing. The, we, we get our list of rules, and anyone that doesn't meet those rules, we can, we can point out to them and say, you're unrighteous. Of course, I could say that to all of you, and you could say that to me. We are unrighteous, but to put ourselves above others because of our sense of personal morality overlooks foreign spirit, overlooks mourning, overlooks meekness. Or we can be only concerned about social righteousness. Um, that was the divide that happened to the church in America around the turn of the, into the 20th century, started before, grew significantly after that, where the social gospel belonged to the liberals who denied that Jesus was the Christ. And the gospel of salvation, of, of holiness and coming to faith, belonged to the fundamentalist churches, the the conservative churches. But God is concerned about both parts of righteousness. God is concerned about the poor, the oppressed. You can't read the prophets and not see his heartfelt concern and his call on his people to care for those that are being oppressed. So that's what can, can affect our hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We can be selective, and God isn't. His righteousness is complete, his righteousness in full. We shall be filled. The term filled comes from feeding cattle that you're trying to get fattened. Uh, fully satisfied. The righteousness he gives is complete. He forgives you completely. You have his righteousness. He places his very spirit in your life that Christ's life can be lived out through you. That's what he's doing. He wants to make you into Christ, Christ-likeness. That's his purpose. That's this greater righteousness that, that Jesus talks about in the sermon. Isaiah 55, 1 through 2, Jesus says these words uh, to some of uh, the others. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And he asks a question. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. That is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do. So we have these first four traits that God is looking at in our lives. I may be stopping uh, before we get to the next four, but um, there's a wonderful parable uh, that really sums up well what God is looking for in our lives. It's Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says, he, he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. That's you, Joe. This tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes on all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is looking for those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all the blessings that we just read, those that indeed can uh, give us rest, renewal, and grace, are ours because those qualities open up grace to us. The law directs us to the gospel. We hear that I'm treating this as law. I'm going to continue. The law directs us to the gospel. We see we fall short. It directs us to the gospel that says, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are forgiven and made new, reborn eternally. But then Christ directs us right back to the law for sanctification. The law for, points us to Christ for justification, but he points us back to the law for sanctification, that we would wrestle with these things and see where God still wants to do his work in our lives. We come to outward tests, and I will um, do these a little more quickly, uh, although I'm retired, I have all the time in the world. But uh, um, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the desired trait is to respond to the mercy that God has already shown us first. God starts with mercy for us, and then we can pass on mercy to others. That's the expectation. And so mercy differs from grace. Mercy deals with the results of sin, the pain misery, distress, while grace deals with sin and guilt itself. Mercy extends relief. Grace extends pardon. So as people who have received pardon and received grace and mercy from God, 
we are to, in turn, show mercy to others. Well, we cannot show mercy unless we first repent and understand that we are in need of forgiveness ourselves. We show mercy because God showed mercy to us first. You know the story of the, the wicked servant, the wicked servant who uh, um, is forgiven all this money. He owes all this debt to a ruler, and he comes and he pleads for forgiveness. And the ruler forgives him and sends him on his way, and then he finds a guy that owes him a day's wage, and he gets incensed and has him thrown in prison. And the others who learn of this tell the ruler and say, look what this guy did. And the ruler brings him in and says, you should have had mercy because I have shown you mercy. Because you haven't, I'm casting you to the jailers where you'll be tortured till you pay everything back to me. It wasn't that God only extends mercy if we extend it first. It's that God extends it first to us. He first gives us mercy. And for those who have received so great a mercy, how can we not show mercy to others? But if we don't, what does that tell us about our character? What does it tell us? God puts that first, but he makes it very clear that you can't have it both ways. If God has shown you so much mercy, who are you to deny so much less mercy to anyone else? So that's, that's the challenge, and it's amazing that God shows us mercy, gives us mercy to make us like, like him, and then he blesses us because we are simply showing the mercy he's already given us. Blessed are the, the merciful, for they will receive mercy. They receive it from God continuously, and they receive it from others to a degree, though mercy is not necessarily held in high esteem universally. In fact, you'll find this is one of the significant differences in the Christian faith and many other belief systems and philosophies. Mercy is looked down on. It's looked at being weak. I won't say who, but we know that it's very much true in the world around us. The second outward test is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The desired trait there, pure in heart, could be defined better as singleness of heart, not a divided heart. Those who have an undivided heart toward God will see a God who himself is pure and undivided. The problem is the heart. <laughs> We're told that the heart is deceitful and that it's uh, desperately sick who can understand it. Our hearts are an issue and we need God to change our hearts. That's the only hope if we're going to have a pure heart. And thankfully, that's why we're again driven to the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. We're driven to know that we need help here. And guess what? God has provided everything we need through Christ. A new heart, a circumcised heart. Uh, no longer hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh with the law written on the heart. That's what God has given us. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. The third test, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The starting point here is first being at peace with God ourselves. God has made Christ our peace. He has given us reconciliation to the Father. We are now in relationship with God. We have peace with God because Christ has brought us to God. He has paid all our debts in full and has brought us to himself. So the starting point is peace, and then we, we like God, should be seeking peace on every level. It's, peacemaking is a divine work. And so God undertook it. We see one example where he does that in uh, the book of Ephesians, where he talks about the division between Jew and Gentile, that he removed that division, making peace, making one out of two, showing his kindness and mercy. What makes it hard to be peacemakers? The, the greatest challenge is the risk of compromise. We can... We are supposed to live in grace and truth, but it's easy to compromise either one of those. We can compromise grace by just being selective. We can be peacemakers and peaceful around those we want to be. So we can be very selective, uh, not showing grace, um, uh, not including those that God includes. Truth is the other side. We are in a world which is contending with many of the things that scripture teaches. And it's easy to compromise. I spent 34 years working at the university and um, I was often felt pressured to go along with things that I did not believe in. Um, how, do you, how do you stand as a Christian but not be opposing people but seeking peace, seeking to bring them to the peace that God offers. It's a challenge, and it's not easy, but blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God is a title. It's, it's different from children of God. Children of God sort of give us the, the picture of God's love for us and care for us, and we are children of God as well. But sons of God is a title. And by the way, sons of God applies to men and women. It's not strictly the males here in the room. Uh, we, we have that status, yeah, so. Uh, most of you know that anyway. But uh, sons of God is a title. And it also speaks of something that we don't see much anymore. Let me just ask a question. Um, how many of you are doing the exact same work your father did? Raise of hands. None of you. But in biblical times and for centuries after that, the son did what the father did. And this is amazing because this is what Jesus did. Jesus did what his father was doing. He did what his father said to do. And it's true for us too. We are sons of God because we are to do the work of God. We are to be involved in the same work that the Father is at work. We're to be doing the same work that the Son did. Uh, that's what it means to be a son of God and how blessed that is 
that we have that, that blessing him. Um, Luke 6.35 says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Peacemakers care about their enemies. They love their enemies. They reach out to their enemies. They want to help their enemies. They seek peace. Outward test number four, and this is the last, and it's a double beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The next two verses. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The amazing thing about this is this is a perfect passive tense, which means that it has the idea of permission. The idea of permission. So Blessed are those who allow themselves to be persecuted. They allow themselves to be persecuted because they want to stay true. They want to stay true to their God. So they allow it. And like the apostles who rejoiced when they were beaten and suffered for Christ, they were faithful. The problems that we see with this is in the history of the church, we can see both extremes. We can see some who sought martyrdom thinking that that's what they should, should have to get this high esteem. We're not to go out and seek persecution. We're just to allow it. And we had the other side where in Northern Africa, the Caesar was persecuting the Christians and you had to choose between worshiping Caesar or worshiping Christ. And many burnt the incense to Caesar because they didn't want to die. Then afterwards, that persecution ended. What was the church to do with those who had burnt incense to Caesar, who had denied Jesus Christ? Persecution is really challenging. I don't know, how many of you... Uh, get materials from Voice of the Martyrs, uh, any of you. Um, uh, I would suggest just go online once and look up Voice of the Martyrs and understand what our brothers and sisters around the world are facing for the name of Christ. Uh, India is getting, the Christians in India are getting challenged. China, North Korea are, are unbelievable, and yet the gospel is growing in every one of those countries. Why? Because of the faithfulness of his people. Why? Because they were willing to be persecuted for the name of Christ. As one person said it, why would I um, turn away from my God for a chance to live a little bit longer at the cost of giving up an eternal life that you can't take from me. Polycarp said words to that effect when he was burned at the stake 
singing hymns to God because he knew a far better reward awaited him. We're all going to lose our lives. Persecution is going to grow. You know, one of the challenges we face is that in the Western world, and especially in the church in the United States, we, we almost believe like persecution should never come to us. The scripture is so clear that we should expect persecution. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But there's great, great blessing and great joy associated with suffering. You read, read the scriptures. Just read the scriptures. See what suffering and joy, how they are so often married together. It's not what we think. It's why these are beatitudes. It's why they're paradoxes. But how blessed it is for the persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of God. And they will be held in highest esteem because of their faithfulness. You know the word martyr is the same word as witness. They're just witnessing to the truth of God. So I won't read the whole passage here, but Romans 3, 15 through 20 is the, the letter to Laodicea, um, uh, knowing that uh, they're not hot or cold. And they say, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, but realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments that you may clothe yourselves. The picture that we have as we look at these outward traits is that we need to be cautious. We don't think of ourselves that we're something that we're not. That's the deception that we, we struggle with in all of these. We think of ourselves as being these wonderful Christians, you know? And we, we all know how to play the game. I had people telling me uh, what a faithful servant I was before I even believed. Because I sang a song and said a, a nice comment, and they thought, oh, this guy is such a humble, wonderful Christian. I knew how to play the game before I even was there. All of us know the outward. That's why we take time, we look at the Beatitudes, we look at things, we ask the Spirit of God to take his word and examine our hearts. The Beatitudes are more of a circle than a string because you notice we come right back to the blessing of the kingdom of heaven. We come to faith through much the same process that we see. First of all, we recognize we're poor in spirit. And then we mourn because of our sin. And we, we become meek. We realize we, we have no place to stand on our own. And then we hunger and thirst for righteousness. That describes our process of coming to faith. Jesus died for us. He became that person. He became poor in spirit. He emptied himself and took on flesh, and even became a servant even to death on the cross. He gave his life for us. But we're in continuous need of the gospel, too. The gospel is not just that ticket to heaven. The gospel is that work of God that continues in our lives as we continue to struggle with the dynamics of sin and failure and all the things that we struggle with. God has not stopped loving you. And the same gospel 
that Jesus died to justify you, he also died to sanctify you. What he did on the cross did both. And what he did will result in being glorified as well. Justified, sanctified, glorified. It's complete, his work of salvation that he's done for us. And I would just warn about things that uh, I, I saw a TV show late one night of any self-help type of gospel. A self-help type of gospel will say, just pray and demand the kingdom of heaven. Just pray for comfort. You can be all you can be and ignore the very pattern that Jesus laid down in his own life and that he's given us by grace. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need your work in our lives. And we just simply ask for that work now, that you would work in us, that you would examine us through your word, and that you would give us all of these blessings through grace, understanding we deserve none of them, but that you desire to give them to us and to bring honor and praise to yourself. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.